possible to speak about pain without just coming face to face with our own limitations and um, our inadequacy to understand but also just to do justice of human suffering on one side we don't want to trivialize that and your your goodness and your holiness on the other side we don't want to trivialize that and in between it's just it's difficult to really do justice to this topic um and i just pray that you would uh you give me the ability to do that, and if I forget something, I pray that somebody would raise their hand and, and, and uh, help me out. And uh, just pray for your your blessings to be on this time that we share together. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so, uh, just a few brief words you should have. Everybody found your, uh, your handouts. Um, there will be no lunch today with the professor. Um, just got home from a trip yesterday, and frantically produce these notes um, in the airplane and then uh, anyway, so um, no lunch I'm going to go home and sleep and uh, there's no class next week I won't be here I was planning on recording a class ahead but I'm just barely keeping up <laughs> so the school's got a reading break uh, everybody else has a reading break you guys have a reading break too at least as far as I'm concerned um, and the next uh, it actually works out well because um the next topic is the cosmological argument. Mm -hmm. So, talking about the Big Bang. And William Lane Craig actually takes two chapters to talk about that. So, you guys, it was already assigned. Mm -hmm. So, you guys can just read the, the two chapters that are assigned and it'll work out perfectly. Um, because they're so difficult, they're, okay, there's going to be some of you that will just fly through and be like, cool, I understand. For some of you, it'll be really, really difficult reading. And I really want you to grasp it because the cosmological argument is the most important argument today. Uh, it's where people are at. Mm -hmm. And when you as a Christian, especially an evangelical conservative Christian, suddenly show proficiency and know what the Big Bang is about and use the Big Bang to prove God, people are like, whoa. And I use this all the time at, at University of Sherbrooke, and, and it, I find it very effective. And so I want you to really understand this, and so you guys don't have to do a Q&A next week, just spend all your time figuring this out, okay? So I handed out one sheet there's more questions than normal uh, because for these two chapters I just want you to have some make sure you understand it so I'll answer those questions there is one section of the argument that um, I'm going to let you skip uh, when he starts talking about um, an actually infinite number of things um, I don't see that you're ever going to use that and uh, your precious neurons might be better used <laughs> elsewhere. Uh, I'm afraid that people are going to start reading that and just be like, I have no idea. I mean, I know. Hilbert's Hotel. Yeah, Hilbert's Hotel. Yeah, I mean, you know, he is a professional philosopher. And so some things that he says make sense to professional philosophers, but not necessarily to the average person on the street. And also, he has written major 
books on time and eternity. And he is one of the world's leading scholars on time and eternity. And there's actually an A theory of time and a B theory of time, and there's the, you know, there's all sorts of issues with God and time, and he has written a lot of books, which is why when you ask a professor to write a book and they get to their favorite topic, they go, <laughs> and he, anyway, so you can skip that part if you want. You can, you can read it if you want as well. You already did, excellent. So, um, this is just to, this is to make it a little bit easier for you, but if you already read it and you appreciated it, then, then that's awesome. So, um, that's what I want to say about the homework. It should be fairly straightforward. Thank you all for your Q&As that you're handing in. They're excellent, and I'm enjoying them. And I'll hand them back soon. Yes? Uh, just regarding lunch, I made a very large turkey soup yesterday. Okay. And I was going to bring it here for lunch. So if anybody wants to pay for lunch okay. and enjoy my turkey soup. <laughs> you can have a lunch without the professor. Very good. Yeah, the professor can have soup. Yeah. With uh, lunch with everybody else. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> certainly be... A good idea just to, you know, discuss the material that we're just hanging out because that's cool too. So uh, so far, let's let's get into the material here. Are there actually are there any questions about the homework? That's good. Okay. Let's dive into the material. So so far, uh, some of the topics that you've hit might have been brand new. You thought I've never thought of this before, and I'm not really sure when I'm going to use this. Yeah. Yeah, and for your homework, even though there isn't a Q&A assigned, be free to work ahead and then uh, don't feel the pressure later on. Um, so some of the issues like the moral argument, you might not, might have never thought of them before. And it might be new information or like worldview, things like that. Um, and you might wonder, when am I actually ever going to use this? The problem of pain, on the other hand, is something that I guarantee all of you have confronted at some point in your life. Uh, if there was some, you know, first year college students, it's possible that, you know, it hadn't really come up yet. There wasn't death in the family. You didn't have a pet. The pet didn't die. Things like that. Um, but anybody that's been around planet Earth more than, say, 25 years, is going to come up against the issue of pain and suffering and evil. And this creates real problems for us that believe in a good God. It, and uh, in your homework, I haven't, um, I haven't marked it all, I haven't looked at it all, but by show of hands, who here knows somebody personally who has lost faith because of evil or suffering? So that's everybody in this room, almost everybody, I'm not sure whether that's a hand up or okay. Um, so this is something that people lose faith over. This is a relevant issue. And um, so our time is well spent in, in figuring out what to do with this issue. Now, the other thing I want to say about this issue is that, um, remember we talked about the burden of proof in the first uh, lecture methodology. So most of our arguments so far have been positive arguments where we have been on the offensive and we have said, and somebody else has been on the defensive, 
And it's as though we have had a sword, and the other has had a shield. Hey, thanks, that's nice. It's as though we went to court as the prosecution, and somebody else went to court as the defense. And we have brought our arguments, and we have tried to win a case against somebody else, to say our worldview, the Christian worldview, is better than postmodernism, is better than polytheism or pre-modernity. Um, or the moral argument that the Christian conception of God is the only legitimate way to, um, to ground objective morals and values or, or the moral law. Today, we're going to be on this side. Other people are going to be saying, because of the evil and suffering in the world, God cannot exist. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be trying to defend, yes, suffering exists, but so does, but God exists too. <clears throat> so we're going to change our stance, so to speak. And this is why um, you'll just notice as you're reading the chapter, he proves his, he says, your argument is not valid, and he ends it there. Whereas before, um, the arguments are more like, I win. You know, I have proved conclusively that the moral argument uh, proves that there is a God. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot more satisfying, in a sense, to be on this side. To say, I win. I've proven my case. Whereas on this side, all you're saying is, you don't win. This case is thrown out of court, so to speak. Um, it, the argument that God could not exist in a world of suffering doesn't... That argument fails. So William Lane Craig is going to be on a defensive posture, and his main argument is just to say this argument doesn't win, doesn't succeed. And it's at least possible, and William Lane Craig is going to say mostly, it's just possible that God could exist with suffering. And so it's, in a sense, less, a less satisfactory answer, um, but it's, it's, it's just part of it. it it's... Now we're on this side of things, and that's just how it is. If you're on the defense, and all of a sudden, halfway through the argument, you go on offense, for one thing, it's confusing, and for another thing, it often weakens your case. And so William Lane Craig, because he, he debates professionally, and he, he goes out and picks you know, the, the world expert on ethics, and he debates you know, this sort of thing, he wants an airtight case. Um, that being said, I did find, like... Well, I appreciated that towards the end, he did come back to kind of real life, you know, because a lot of it was kind of just debate, debate, mm -hmm. um, and almost winning through <laughs> debate strategies, it felt like. Um, but towards the end, it, it did kind of get back to planet Earth and make a little bit more sense. On this issue, I find C.S. Lewis more helpful, um, because this is the sort C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, and then uh, the book specifically, Problem of Pain. Problem of Pain is a little bit more of a difficult read. Uh, Mere Christianity was originally a radio address uh, that he gave verbally over the years, so it, it kind of flows and, and, and has more of a cadence. But the problem of pain, if you want more information, is also a great resource that kind of builds off this. And I find, I just find that they're saying basically the same thing, but C.S. Lewis just presents it in a way that's like, okay, I can, I can use this in a conversation. So we're gonna end up quoting a bunch of C.S. Lewis today. So, with those introductory uh, comments out of the way, let's move on to more introductory comments. Um, you have a nice little picture here about uh, 
on the next page, page two, the problem of evil. So the technical word for the problem of evil is theogony. And this has been a long theogony. Is that what I put down? I kept calling it something else. Theogony, the problem of pain. So this could be the problem of pain, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. Uh, they're all kind of interchangeable, and I'll probably switch between them throughout the course of this, because uh, C.S. Lewis says the problem of pain, and uh, William Lane Craig likes to talk about the problem of suffering um, and evil. So if we could visualize it this way, the picture that I have for you, but it's not in... And he's looking at this old world of ours, and there's two types of, um, there's two issues in the problem of pain. One is natural suffering. And so here we have um, volcanoes, earthquakes, hurricane, Matthew, um, we have all the messed up stuff that happens in the world, Ebola, we have um, you know Zika virus and things like that. The other part, which would have been easy to put on top, is um, <laughs> people hurting one another. Um, you know, rape, violence, wars, um, Wall Street abuses, um, all the terrible things that, uh, you know, first world's abusing the third world labor policies. So, this is natural and this is moral evil. Or if you can't read my writing. But moral evil and natural evil. So, again, the issue of theogony goes way back before Christianity. It goes all the way back. I mean, Job is, you know, perhaps one of the first, the earliest books in the Bible, and it's all about theogony. How can a good God exist in a world of suffering? Mm -hmm. And all the great religions have, have wrestled with this, all the great philosophers throughout history have wrestled with this. Because when you remove, well, we'll get there in a second, but if you just remove God from the equation, it doesn't solve the issue. Because then you don't really know, back to the moral argument, why are we even talking about good and bad? So that's why we did the moral argument first, because the moral argument says we know there is something called good, and, and we have this sense that we should be good, and the world should be good. And this kind of leads us up to God. Well, we have this moral sense, therefore there must be something kind of giving us this moral sense, that we're, and that's the moral argument that God put our conscience within us. But as we look at the natural world, we see, but this isn't what we see. We would expect to see that the world should be fair, but the world is not fair. The, the world is a cruel and mean place. Uh, natural evils happen all the time. And, and people that totally don't deserve it get hurt. And then people are mean to one another. And there's, there's moral evils. And one of the hardest things I find is that I get wrapped up in the sins of other people. Like, it's not my fault that, you know, white people abused and, and colonized the Native Americans. I didn't, I didn't have any, any choice in that. But it's my fault because, you know, I'm, I'm part of that whatever, uh, that ethnicity or, or uh, political system. So that's that's moral evil. So, eh, it's fairly straightforward. You guys clear on moral evil, not evil? Yeah. So this causes a twofold problem. It causes a problem intellectually. 
talk about the intellectual problem of pain and the emotional. Now, usually, our, our culture really likes to divide us from head to heart. And usually, I resist it to say, whoa, you know, we are united, like we are mind and heart. But on this issue, I think it is helpful to say we need to know what we're talking about. So I would resist saying we're only going to talk about the intellectual issue. You know, we need to talk about both. But at the same time, when we're talking about the intellectual issue, we can't go off the rails and, and be talking about this heart-wrenching situation that really, you know. When we're talking about the emotional aspect, we, intellectual answers are not really helpful. And that's where I want to go next, is um, to my credit or to my shame, I preached on this um, a long time ago, before, you know, I was about 25. I had read C.S. Lewis, I read The Problem of Pain, and I was like, I got this figured out. <laughs> got it all figured out. And, you know, honestly, my intellectual arguments haven't changed a whole lot since then. Um, but, uh, what was it? The, um, the earthquake hit in Haiti. And, uh, I felt like, you know, people are struggling with this, I'm going to get up, I'm going to preach a sermon, and, uh, you know, help people figure out um, how God can exist in a world of suffering, which, you know, I, I'm not ashamed of, of wanting to help people wrestle through these things. Um, and I think the sermon ended up not being that bad, as I recall. Um, but uh, as I was talking about this, I talked with uh, an older pastor, um, not from our church, but our, our church is along back in, in my hometown in Red Lake. And I, I shared what I was going to preach on. He was like, really? Are, are you sure you want to talk about this? Like, has your church asked you to? And just kind of like, why? You know? And um, it kind of made me think, okay, well, hold on a second. There might be an emotional aspect of this that I need to be cautious of. And since that time, um, life has happened. <laughs> And I do want to spend most of our time on the intellectual problem of pain. But the last couple years, I don't want to go too much into my own personal drama here, but have been really, really rough. Um, we felt called to go to Africa to be missionaries. My wife got sick. We had to come back. A dream died. Um, and we're still kind of trying to figure out, <laughs> A, God, why did you do that? And B, what next? Um, which is why I'm here. Is, you know, I, it's okay. amazing to us. Thank you very much. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So there's, there's a silver line. But, um, Come on. It's good. It's good, yes. The, the thing I want to say about, about the emotional problem, as I'm, I just finished reading through Job as well, why do we keep ending up being like Job's comforters. I, I don't know if you guys have, have you guys all read the book of Job? You know, kind of, you know, the guy's got it all, he's a, a godly guy, and then he loses it all in one night, one day, and then his friends go around and they basically say, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. Just repent, Job, just say you're sorry, and it'll all, come, it'll all go away. Why do we do that? Why do I feel like I have done that to people? Why have people done that to me? You don't know what else to do. Yeah, so answer this question. What? We don't know what else to do. Why else do we become Job's friends when, when suffering happens? Why do, we become why do we become his friends? Why do we, why does the church, maybe not us personally, because, you know, we fear. We fear. We want to make sure it doesn't happen to us. Yeah. We want to make sure. We want to know what the reason is. 
Yeah. I think these are, are some really good things to just keep in mind. When we see somebody suffering, often um, our gut reaction is fear. Mm -hmm. And also confusion, also just like, this isn't right. Mm -hmm. A, this, this might happen to me. Somehow their disaster might rub off on me. Or this might cost me. I might, if I realize that this is unjust suffering, God might be calling me to alleviate some of this suffering. And finally, this just causes me difficulty. And this is the intellectual problem of pain. How can a good God allow a good person to suffer like this? On all three of these issues, the whole problem evaporates if it's just their fault. If it's their fault, I'm not necessarily obligated to help them. You gotta sleep in your own in the bed that you made, or whatever other expression, right? Um, if it's their fault, then it's not necessarily going to contaminate me because you know I'm smart and I handle my books well and I brush my teeth and take my vitamins. So if it's for some reason their fault that they got cancer, then it's I'm not going to get cancer or I'm not going to go bankrupt or whatever, right? And if it's their fault, then God is off the hook. God is vindicated. And, and that just you know, brings so much relief to be like the world makes sense again. And so for these three reasons, it is so easy. In fact, it's like gravity wanting to pull us towards saying it's your fault. If somebody is suffering and you see it all over, you know, when politics come up and talking about you know, helping the poor versus not helping the poor, it's all about you know, people are poor because they deserve it. Versus, um, you know, maybe we need to help them out. So, um, I could talk a lot about this. In fact, I did talk a lot about this. Um, if you go to my sermons podcast, there's a sermon called Pain. And then there's a sermon right after it called On, on Running and Suffering Well. And my, my argument is that um, for Christians, suffering is a thing that we do. It, it's part of our Christian walk. And there's times in our Christian walk where we, we run, and we, we learn lots of things, and we do lots of things, and we conquer, you know, climb mountains, and, and, and do all these things for God. And then there's other seasons in our life where we just suffer, and we suffer well. And that's your job. You know, if you're in a season of suffering, your job is to suffer well. It's not to conquer mountains or, or to, to win people to Christ necessarily. You suffer well. And there is a reward in that. It is beautiful. It is blessed. It is... Um, a holy calling to suffer well. And, all through, and we're going to come back to this throughout the course of our material here. But um, there is a, a current in our generation of you know, the health and wealth gospel. Wealthy people are wealthy because they're blessed. Poor people are poor because they're cursed. Healthy people are healthy because they're blessed. Sick people are sick because they're cursed. And we could talk a lot about this, but... It's not biblical, and it's wrong. Okay? So, that is the what I want to say about the emotional problem of pain. Um, when somebody is really suffering, maybe I'll just read C.S. Lewis, because everything is better when we read C.S. Lewis. Um, <laughs> Lewis did it work on my British? <laughs> well, there's, there's good parts and bad parts. Um, work on my British accent, but uh, 
I must add to you that the only purpose of this book is to solve the intellectual problem raised by suffering. For the far higher task of teaching um, patience and long-suffering, I was never fool enough to suppose myself qualified, nor have I anything to offer to my reader except my conviction that when pain is to be borne, a little courage helps more than much knowledge, a little human sympathy more than much courage, and the least tincture of the love of God more than all. That's the afterwards for you. I'm going to read that again. When you're really going through a hard time, a little courage helps more than knowledge. A little human sympathy more than much courage. And the least tincture of the love of God more than all. <clears throat> when people are really going through a hard time, they don't necessarily need to know all these big philosophical answers. In fact, these can be offensive and hurtful. Um, especially if we are too quick, or like, they're nuanced positions, okay? It's not as though, you know, your child is suffering because of this and this and this, and we can just explain it. Um, but bottom line, when people are suffering, they need somebody to hold their hand and to care for them and to walk through something with them. And, and these arguments might be helpful at a later date or in another way. like they, that was the part where they did the right thing. <laughs> you know, just sit in dust and ashes and, and care for your friend. Um, let's move on to the intellectual problem of pain. And um, you all know people that have lost their faith because of pain. And uh, you all have faced things in your life which you look at in your life. It's page 93, section 2. How can God allow this? How can God let this happen? And William Lane Craig on page 152 of his book says, I'll be honest with you, when I see these sorts of things go on, it makes it hard to believe in God. And I thought this was um, shockingly honest and very real for a major apologist of the Christian faith to say, look, when I see some things go on in this world, it just makes it hard to believe But, he goes on to clarify, this is the emotional aspect of pain. And as a philosopher, I need to look at what the intellectual problem of pain is. And so then he shifts our focus to say, what is the argument? Um, and so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to look at what is the rational defense of how God can exist, be almighty, be loving, and yet pain exists. So, um, before I go... On to more of William Lane Craig. As I said, I really did find uh, C.S. Lewis to be really helpful. And I find that William Lane Craig builds his ideas on the same ideas that C.S. Lewis does, 
And C.S. Lewis, throughout his book, says, I'm not original, I'm just recycling stuff. Uh, he, he's very explicit. He goes back to Augustine a lot, which I might find time to quote later on. But Augustine is kind of the foundation of Western thought, uh, Catholicism and Protestant thought. And C.S. Lewis is just able to package it in a way that, like, oh, everybody else understands it and makes sense. Um, so the basic idea on bottom 93 here is, number one, evil has no substance in itself. And Augustine, back in the 4th century, spent a lot of time wrestling with the problem of evil. He used to be part of a group called the Manichaeans, which, anyways, that evil was a big issue with his intellectual development. And eventually he realized, because he's wrestling with how, how can God be all-loving and all-powerful, and yet he created evil? So this is, this is the big question for today. How could God create evil? And what he came to, to believe is that evil has no substance in and of itself. Evil is like darkness. When you create the light, darkness is a necessary byproduct. Because where the light is not, there is darkness. There's a shadow. That's not to say, I mean, light, light is good. God created light, but a consequence of that is to create shadows. Um, evil is kind of like if I took a piece of paper or a book and I cut a hole out of it, that would be evil, according to the Augustinian view. It's like a distortion out of something. It's like um, something gone wrong. If there was no good, there could not be evil. And when you start to think about this, you realize that this is this makes sense. If you look at um, the the major villains, people are always trying to make like the pure evil villain in in movies and stuff. But usually, the ones that are quote unquote pure evil become unbelievable. Like this doesn't really make sense. The people that are the worst villains, usually it's something good, something like patriotism or love of their child, or love of, or vengeance for their child, or, um, or something like a sexual pleasure, um, or a pleasure, you know, that, that has gone out of whack. This becomes their guiding direction. And you can see how these were all good things. They've just gone off the rails. They've gone in a bad direction. And so this becomes a really powerful explanation, which actually makes a lot of sense when you look at the world around you. To say evil is a distortion of something that was good. So God did not create evil per se. He only created good. But the, the good turned evil. Okay, so now we need to explain how did God create something good that then turned evil. Um, if you, you know, bake a wonderful cake, take it out of the oven, put it down, and then it flops. It wasn't a very good cake, was it? <laughs> you did something wrong. Uh, so, so what went wrong with God's creation? God created what? Free will. So this is, this is it. This is our argument. This is the center here, is free will. So if you're a Calvinist, this doesn't work for you, depending on... on uh, although I shouldn't say that, because Augustine is the foundation of Calvinism, so they would use this as well. It, just, it, would, it would have to be um, phrased in a different way, probably. So God created free will, which is a good thing. And because we, as humans, have free will, we're able to choose good or bad, and we chose sin. Therefore, um, moral evil. We chose, you know, Adam chose to eat the fruit, rebellion against God, and then his children chose to fight and kill one another. This is moral evil. 
And then the whole race goes downhill to the point where uh, one of his great-great-grandkids, somebody insults him on the street, and so he goes and kills him and then brags about it. And all of people's uh, thoughts are just evil all the time before the flood. And, you know, mankind is fallen because of free choice, free will. And we, we would go on in the West, uh, in the Western tradition, to say that all people, because of the sin of Adam, are born with a sin nature. So it would, how that works out is going to be a little bit different, whether um, at birth you are uh, fully responsible for all of your, the, your parents' sins, or whether you just have an inclination. I would tend to say that babies are born with an inclination towards sin, although they don't bear the moral guilt yet until they sin. When they sin, then they have the moral guilt of their own sins, but they don't carry the guilt of their parents' sins. They carry the inclination of their parents, which is why I believe that infants and children go to heaven, even though if they had lived long enough, they would sin and um, go to hell without being saved. Yes? Is it necessary for you to postulate that it's in nature if, by definition, they have free will, therefore... No, it's not necessary. Oh, okay. And the Eastern Church would wasn't influenced by Augustine, and so Eastern Orthodox, the Copts, the um, Russian Orthodox, wouldn't hold to uh, original sin in the same way. Which is why when missionaries go to Russia, they they preach penal substitutionary atonement, that you are a sinner and, and Jesus has uh, died for your sins to pay the, uh, you know, the, the price, and people are like, why do I need that? <clears throat> Even people that from the Christian background, just because they see it differently. Um, original sin is very central and important for us in the West, mm -hmm. and I don't want to get rid of it because I think it's biblical, but there is more than one way to skate a cat. Um, and, and I do want to say, th this is a whole other issue, but you can get into heaven with all sorts of messed up theology. This is what I've concluded from reading, from reading an awful lot of church history, especially the early church. I've realized you can get into heaven with an awful lot of messed up theology, or else most of the guys in Christian history are not Christians, right? Um, but that doesn't mean we need to have messed up theology. I think that um, original sin, penal substitutionary atonement, is the best way to read the Bible. But I understand you can be a Christian and read it slightly differently. And you get saved by the death of Jesus Christ, but how you understand that is uh, a different thing. And uh, that is a whole other issue. Um, no, that's great, though. And I, I do want to mention, I really want to have good Q&A throughout this, because um, your questions and the things that your interaction with this is really going to help it make sense. So keep the questions coming, and I'll keep, try and keep the, us on point. Um, so... Evil has no substance in itself, like a shadow, like, um, it is a necessary part of goodness. God did not create evil, he only created good, God created free will, and we chose evil. Thus the possibility of sin is inherent within the creation of free will. Thus God created humanity, and angels, and whatever else he made good, but they turned to sin. And Ecclesiastes 7.29, it's not often that you, you prove theological point from Ecclesiastes, but uh, this verse really hits the nail on the head. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. That really, boom, encapsulates it. God made us good, we turned aside. Behold, uh, all we like sheep have, have gone astray, we've 
turn each one to our own way. So we could prove that from um, Isaiah as well. Um, so let's go to C.S. Lewis now. To just reinforce. When we have understood about free will, we will see how silly it is to ask, if someone asked me, why did God make a creature of such rotten stuff that it went wrong? The better stuff a creature is made of, okay, so this is his answer, the better stuff a, a creature is made of, the cleverer and stronger and freer it is, the better it will be if it goes right, but also the worse it will be if it goes wrong. A cow cannot be very good or very bad. A dog can be both better and worse. A child better and worse still. An ordinary person, still more so. A man of genius, still more so. You have the evil villain genius, or you can have the superhero genius. A superhuman spirit, best or worst of all. The thing about Satan being... How did Satan go wrong? Here, no doubt, we ask the question to which human beings cannot give an answer. Okay, no, actually, I'm going to go on. So, I, I think that explained it very well. The, the better humanity could be, and we have, we're made in the image of God, we have tremendous potential to help the planet, to help one another, to um, worship God, to experience joy and pleasure and um, creativity. But the better that capacity is, the worse the capacity is to go the other way. No. Have well, they have they some. Really, yeah, but I mean, like the mud monster. Or oh, I suppose, like, yeah, but they're almost natural evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah almost, yeah. <laughs> the blob. Yeah, but the, most of the super villains, they're like incredibly intelligent. Yeah. Uh, just, we're talking a lot about um, the evil of man, but I think my mind always goes like before that, and the original origin. So you're asking how Satan went wrong? Yeah, like, yeah. And, and so God created Satan, he is an angel, we know that, right? Mm -hmm. I just don't have an answer for how. And the Bible doesn't really give one. Right. Um, I didn't come prepared to discuss Satan, but that is actually where he goes next. So Lewis <laughs> usually anticipates. Um, usually anticipates us. What he basically says is, look, we don't really know why Satan went wrong. The Bible doesn't tell us. Genesis one, he's just Genesis three, he's just there, and he introduces temptation into the world. Um, there is a very mysterious passage in one of the prophets where it talks about one of the kings, is it Ezekiel? And then all of a sudden, it starts talking about you used to walk among the fiery stones and, and worship God, but you became arrogant and you worshipped yourself, and and it all of a sudden it's like. Are you talking about a king of Assyria or something, or are you talking about Satan? And so we tend to take this and say, this is speaking about Satan. If you could find out, that would be excellent. <laughs> and, um, and we would tend to say, as C.S. Lewis is going to say next, when humans go wrong, what we, the problem usually is putting self first. You know, being selfish in some way, 
and elevating self over others. And so we would assume, and from this passage, it really seems as though pride was the main sin of Satan, that he was trying to elevate himself above God and be worshipped. And so the sin of Satan has tended to be thought of as pride. This is the, the, the most fundamental sin is pride, uh, depending on you know, who you ask within Christian tradition. And so that would be how, how Satan went wrong before the creation of the world or, or whenever, you know, um, however time works, you know, uh, whether heaven was created before space-time in this reality. But um, so that's how Satan went wrong, and then Satan injected the idea of sin into human history. But Adam and Eve would have had complete freedom to choose either way. After them, um, we have free will, but because of the influence of our parents and because of original sin, we would tend to say, it's, it's going to be impossible to grow up, go through life, and never choose sin. Whereas it would have been possible for Adam and Eve to go through life and never choose sin. Because they didn't have a sin nature. So thanks a lot for those, these questions. What's that? Good. Thank you. Glad you approved. Um, are there other potential objections at this point? Because understanding free will and C.S. Lewis at this point, or Hogsley, whoever it is, is really, really key. So we can object, why didn't God just create beings who are free from sin? The way uh, William and Craig will say it is basically, this may be logically incoherent. To say free from sin, and um, having free will, but not able to sin. So God can create anything. God can do anything, right? Can God create a square circle? Circle is like this. By definition, it has four corners. A circle you know, is this. By definition, it has no corners. So God cannot create things that are logically incoherent. So if it's true, and we always, C.S. Lewis and William Craig will always preface this with an if, because we can't know these things, right? But if it's true that that for a human to have free will necessitates the possibility of being able to choose evil, it would be logically impossible. It's incoherent, like a square circle, to say God would create somebody free, but there's no possibility of them choosing evil. So it was necessary in some way, and so then we get into Calvinism, predestinism, you know, whatever, depending on how you work that out. But in some way, it's necessary that God had to create free will. And that free will would necessarily involve the possibility of evil. Then the next question is, well, was it worth it? All this evil for the good of humanity, which is a huge question. And C.S. Lewis just kind of punts at this by saying, uh, A, humanity is a pretty good thing. There's lots of great things that humanity has going for it. And B, um, how can we know? We don't have the information to know whether or not it, was, it would be good. God is an omnipotent being. He created us. He must have thought that it was good. Sorry, some of this stuff is not on the notes. Um, so, two potential objections to that is, well, God is free and he is not able to sin. Uh, this is on page 94. God is free and he's not able to sin. So, so why didn't God just make people like us? And the best answer I have to that is that probably it's just an aspect of God's own nature that he was not able to impart. God is not able to impart all of the aspects of his nature, uh, it would seem to me, um, and this is just one of the ones that it, it seems was, was not able to be transmitted. Um, 
Okay, but in heaven, people are free and yet do not sin. Right? In heaven, we're going to have free will. We're not just going to be robots that are like, you know, before the throne, throwing our crown, whatever. We're going to be free agents that are, you know, there voluntarily and, and happy about what we're doing. Um, so why didn't God just skip the whole earth thing and just go straight to heaven? What do you guys say to that to give you a chance to get some water? couldn't skip earth to go to heaven because people in heaven wouldn't have chosen to be there. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting, um, oh, I should have found the quote for this, but I think it was Craig Harris, uh, Craig Harris? Somebody Harris that wrote the God, um, God is not good, um, said, I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want to be stuck somewhere worshiping God that I hate, <laughs> which I think, I forget the quote exactly, but it is very accurate. I mean, heaven would... My, my personal opinion on heaven and hell is that the, they're almost the same place in a sense. What is different because they're the manifest presence of God. They're God's presence with no, no buffer. It's just God and us. So depending on the state that you are in is going to depend on your experience, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. If you are sinful and loving of self and are not your, your sin is not covered and redeemed, then the, the un, unfiltered experience of God is not going to be a good thing. Um, and God had to give us you know, the free will, and then also you know, through the free will, choosing sin, but then redeeming us, and then able to uh, restore us, and able to, to put us in heaven in a place where we have freely chosen that. We are freely loving Him, we are freely worshiping Him, and we are freely enjoying Him. Yeah. I'm just trying to think this out through, but maybe you guys can add to it. 
I'm just thinking God created, he gave us free will, but he also made us spiritual beings. Because it's like, if we just intellectualize the, oh, why did he give us free will? But it's like, I'm trying to figure out the spirit, our spirit component to the free will. Because it's like, he didn't just give us free will, he also made us spiritual beings. So it's like, how do those two mesh together that, yes, we can choose right or wrong, but there's even the, we have, we have the spirit that's um, in play in that too. So we're not just all up in our heads. You know, there's like, there's a spiritual component to, to our free will that do we, I'm just like, if we only think up here, or if we never realize, hey, there's a spiritual drawing that's happening, um, it's like, we can have the, we can have the debate up here, but how do we leave the debate in the spirit? I don't know, maybe that's a, another component, but I'm just trying to make sense of, but we're spiritual beings, too. I don't know how, I, I'm just By spiritual, do you mean emotional? Well, I'm thinking, like, um, was it this class or the other class that we were talking about, you know, there's, God has created us with this longing to be loved yeah. and to be forgiven, and um, and uh, there's this longing in us um, that until we're connected with God and we understand His Son, it's like He's put that in us, whether we believe in Him or not, is what we've been we've been studying. So there's this there's this tug of war going on in the inside of us, and then there's this okay, I've got this free will. There's a tug of war going on too. So, I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. I'm like, yeah. I don't know if I can. Let me, um, <laughs> I'm realizing that having questions in the middle is great, but it, it affects the time. And so I'm just looking at the time thinking, shoot, I have a lot to cover here. Um, so, the other, the other thing just to kind of wrap up, the, to make this a co coherent package about the free will, um, Shoot, I just erased it. So, you understand that um, moral evil, man's choice in the garden, caused natural evil, right? Because man sinned, you know, man generically, Adam in, in the Hebrew, man and woman, because humanity sinned, you know, the earth has fallen, and that's why we have earthquakes, hurricanes, volcanoes, whatever. Um, also, often, you know, that's why we have pollution, right? That's why we have um, uh, other sorts of you know, global warming, if you believe in that, and other sorts of natural evils. Um, it, it, somebody gave a, um, a good illustration of hell, and I, I just gave one about you know, being in the presence of God and not being redeemed. If you think about a free agent, a free human being, all right, you can choose whatever you want, but you're not redeemed, you have a sin nature. And any time that you think Anytime that you do something wrong, instead of God waiting until you die, he's going to judge you right away. Okay, so you, you hit somebody, boom, you feel that, that being hit back. Um, but God is a perfect and holy God, so he doesn't want to stop there. Also, Jesus said, if you hate somebody in your heart, that is just as bad as murder. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be consequences even about what you think. And, you know, if you commit adultery in your mind, it's the same as committing it in real life. So there's going to be consequences even for your thoughts, mm -hmm. right away, immediately. And if you start to visualize what immediate justice would look like, you realize this would kind of be a hellish existence. Yeah. A, because that's not real free will. 
there's no ability really to choose to do something because you, you walk in this direction, I'm mad at you, and boom, I feel hit, you know? And it's just like, there wouldn't really be a freedom of will. And, and that would be extremely frustrating, I think, to the point of, of torture. Yeah. And also, because of our continual sin nature, you know, we're all repenting all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, the, an Eastern prayer is, Lord, have mercy. Mm -hmm. I forget exactly how it goes, but it's just, Lord, have mercy. And, you know, you can meditate just with, with praying the Jesus prayer, Lord, have mercy, because it's so central, because we need to repent all the time, because we sin all the stake of time. And so, if we were, were judged all the time, immediately, that, that would be a hellish sort of experience, which helps to explain why God had this intermediate time, you know, and God waits with patience, waiting for us to come to repentance, as it says in First Peter. So I hope that that helps to kind of explain the big picture of how free will uh, helps to explain how suffering can exist in a world um, created by a good God. So then we're going to get into William Lane Craig and uh, get into his arguments. And I'm going to move through them fairly quickly because they're fairly straightforward. Um, we're on page 95, the logical impossibility argument. So this argument is going to say that there is some sort of a logical incoherence between these two issues. Similar to what I said about the square circle. Uh, God could not create a, a square circle. So the idea of squareness, the idea of circleness are mutually exclusive. They don't overlap. One, if you have a square, you don't have a circle. If you have a circle, you don't have a square. So the argument is that these two statements are logically incoherent. God. God is good and all-powerful. And two, evil or suffering or um, or pain exists. So apparently there is a, a contradiction between these two. And he's going to go on to say, this isn't something like a square circle. There is no apparent contradiction between these two. So we need to dig into this and say, what? where is the issue? I don't see the issue just looking at these two. So the hidden premises are going to be, if God were good, uh, he would... Sorry, I'm being lazy here. If God were good, then evil would not exist. Um, if God is... If God is powerful... Yeah, if God were, were powerful, yeah, he could he could create. So I actually put these in, in the opposite order than you have them in your book. Yeah, but it still works. So if God is powerful, he can create any world he wants, and if he's good, he would create a world without evil. But, as we've already looked at it, and this is why we did C.S. Lewis first, and kind of gave the whole picture instead of just blah, free will, um, God is capable, or it's it's not necessarily true that if God were powerful, he could create something logically incoherent. So this idea of all-powerful is kind of this you know, philosophical concept that isn't necessarily scriptural, 
And even the idea of all-powerful is going to have some limitation. We can't create something that's logically incoherent. And we don't necessarily, I mean, we can't know what is logically incoherent for God, but we can at least, we can at least posit that it is possible that God is not able to create um, a, a free being who is, without, who is sinless. And because we're able to say there's at least a possibility, then this is not logically incoherent. And this is where we're getting into, we're in a defensive mode. If you just poke one hole in the argument, then we prove that it is not necessarily true that a good God cannot exist with evil. Also, if God were good, he would create a world with no evil. This is not, again, not necessarily true. God could have morally justifying, and we're going to come back to this a couple times. Morally justifiable reasons for creating a world that has evil and suffering in it. Now, before we talk about, you know, big picture, God morally justifying, let's, let's go to our day-to-day -day experience. Now, is it right to um, imprison a child against their will in a room, for example? No, it's not right. Could a parent have morally justifying reasons for sending a child to their room? Yeah. Uh, is it right to kill some, somebody? Could you have morally justifying reasons to kill somebody? Is it right to send somebody to their doom to do something extremely dangerous or where they would likely die? But could you have morally justifying reasons to send somebody to their death, perhaps? In a war, a, a president says, or prime minister says, this war is important. We need to fight this, so go fight it. Um, somebody could have morally justifying reasons to do something that on the surface wouldn't, wouldn't seem right. And so, again, because we don't have complete knowledge of God, how can we know that he doesn't have morally justifying reasons for allowing suffering and pain? We're going to talk more about this um, as we go along. But these, the things we've just mentioned about this, sufficiently um, wound this argument to where it's, it proves that it's not logically incoherent. It doesn't win on the grounds of being logically incoherent to say God is like a circle, evil is like a square, the two cannot coexist. Okay, it doesn't work in that sense. Uh, if we're talking about just philosophers, you know, off in philosophy land, trying to win arguments, it doesn't work in a logically incoherent way like that. Which is why William Lane Craig says professional philosophers have parked this one and don't talk about it anymore. Uh, this argument has been won, which doesn't happen very often. But this, people, responsible philosophers would not say God is logically incoherent with suffering, just because it, it tries to make the claim that we have knowledge that we could not possibly have. Uh, because we don't know if God could have morally justifying reasons for this. Um, so you will see this argument floating around the internet every once in a while if you have atheist friends. Um, Epicurus uh, 341 to 270 BC said, and I have this in your notes, do you want to put up uh, quote number one, I think? Is God willing to prevent evil, but not evil? That he is not omnipotent, 
Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent or evil. Is he both able and willing? Then where does evil come from? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? So if you sort through all that and you, you read that and you're like, boom, we lose. <laughs> um, but if you sort through all that, what he's basically saying is God is not, God could not have morally justifying reasons for allowing evil. God could not have morally justifying reasons for allowing evil. But how could he know? And again, with free will, free will, just think about all the awesome things that are possible because of free will. Just think about your kids and how awesome the, the beauty and the, and the potential of, of young life would not really be possible without free will. Uh, and again, this is restated by David Hume in a, whatever, we don't need to read that. But it, this sort of thing gets cycled around and um, it's, it's important to know how to deal with that. Um, okay, I'm going to read C.S. Lewis again just to underline the point that has been made. So is this state of affairs where the world is, is under the control of Satan and evil people, is this state of affairs in accordance with God's will or not? If it is, he is a strange God, you will say. And if not, how can anything happen contrary to the will of a being with absolute power? Kind of re-quoting re um, what Hume and um, Epicurus says. And here's his answer. But anyone who has been in authority knows how a thing can be in accordance with your will on one, in one way and not in another. Something can be in accordance with your will on one hand, but not in another. It may be quite sensible for a mother to say to the children, I'm not going to go and make you tidy the schoolroom every night. You've got to learn to keep it tidy on your own. Then she goes up one night and finds the teddy bear and the ink and the French grammar all lying in the corner. That is against her will. She would prefer the children to be tidy. But on the other hand, it is her will which has let the children be free to be untidy. The same thing arises in any regiment or trade or school. You make a thing voluntary and then half the people do not do it. So how many are going to read the, the argument about uh, time and eternity <laughs> made involuntary? So... Um, if you make something voluntary, half the people aren't going to do it. And that is not what you want. Well, actually, I don't care if you read that part. Um, that's not what you want, but your will has made it possible. Okay? So when God's, because God doesn't have a bunch of robots, he's got free will agents. Um, similar to children. You, know, you create children and you, you raise them up in the way they should go, but they don't necessarily go the way that you want them to go. And that is just part and parcel of having free will. The next, the, the more pop, popular conception of this is to lower a little bit the burden of proof. To, to bite off a smaller piece of the pie um, and to say, look, I'm not going to say it's logically incoherent, I'm just going to say it's unlikely. And this, honestly, is where a lot of us live. And we're on page 98 logical improbability. So it's not logically impossible, it's just given how much suffering there is, given, and, and depending where we are, I mean, we have it pretty good, right? Uh, we live in a good country, we have peace, we have health, we have health care even. Um, we have it pretty good, but depending on where you are, and depending on what sort of news that, that you uh, open yourself up to, you can realize there's an awful lot of pain and suffering going on in the world. And you can ask the question, is it logical to say that a good God would create a world in a like this. 
So the first answer to this, and, and I do want to, um, on this issue, as much as we're saying this is an intellectual issue, not an emotional issue, there's going to be crossover, as you said, whether it's spiritual or emotional. or We are emotional, uh, intellectual, spiritual, physical beings, and it all interrelates. Um, and so th this is where the complexity of it comes from. You can, you can give all your arguments and somebody can just say, but I just want to unlike him. And yet, it is helpful to have reasons for our faith. So the first, the first answer to this is we are incapable of gauging probabilities. I have it written down and we'll take home time to write it out. So we are limited and God is infinite. Uh, we have a finite perspective, God has an infinite perspective. We can't really know what reason God might have. You I mean you can let's take it to the extreme. If I go to the doctor tomorrow for a routine checkup for one of my kids, they have leukemia. Um, what possible reason could God have to give my kid leukemia? And I might come to a Christian and say, Why would God do this to me? And you'd be like, I have no idea. No idea. And don't try and give a reason in that case, because Honestly, I don't know. And even all this, this free will stuff, that's just a guess. I mean, that is, that is a good answer. But even that, I mean, we don't have access to, to knowing all, everything about God. So we have, we're perfectly justified to say, I don't know. We're not lying. Just saying, I don't know. Um, because, and this is the human perspective, we, we don't know everything, okay? Uh, so how can you say that it's unlikely? We're just incapable of knowing this. Now, that might seem like kind of a, a heavy-handed appeal to faith versus fact. And if we overuse this, our kids will get frustrated and will not appreciate it. If you say, what about creation evolution? What about the Big Bang? What about, you know, this, that, and the other? And you just keep saying, well, we don't know because God is perfect and we're not perfect. And you don't want to overuse this one, okay? But on this issue, I think it is legitimate and valid to say we honestly as humans just can't know. And, um, there's something called, there, there's a study, there's, what is it, a department of, there, there's chaos theory. Uh, is that philosophy or is that science? I don't even know. Is that math? Thank you very much. So, you know, throughout the Enlightenment of the modern era, you know, people were like, everything is governed by natural laws, which are mathematically, you know, quantifiable or provable. And, uh, you know, to the point where somebody said, if I had all the factors in place, I could predict everything that would happen in the future. Because everything happens according to mathematical laws. Yes, but what they're realizing now is that there's something called chaos theory, which means there's just so much complexity, if I understand the theory right, there's just so much craziness going on that you can't really predict the future. And this is called the butterfly effect because the idea is that a butterfly beating its wings on one side of the earth could set in motion weather, weather patterns, because weather is basically chaotic, it's so complex it's basically chaotic, uh, that could cause a hurricane on the other end of the other side of the world. So that's the butterfly effect, the famous butterfly effect in the movie that people talk about the butterfly effect. It's just one tiny little cause can cause something else that you could never predict. If you're sitting there watching a butterfly on a, on a twig, flapping its wings, causing a tiny little bit of, of air, you would have no idea what that causes, what that sets in motion. So how can you, even me, you know, looking at, at this hypothetical pain, <coughs> I don't want to go there too much, that's actually not nice to think about. But even me in that situation, how would I know what is going to come out of this? 
And I would even go, he's got some other illustrations about just, you know, in a date, there was a movie called Sliding Doors and just kind of the chaos of, you know, one person's life at this juncture changed because of something completely random and, you know, it could have gone in two different directions and this random event could have been significant for something else. Something that's significant in your life might be significant for somebody else. You don't know why, you know, you were late and you blocked traffic and somebody else didn't get hit by a car. Like, we don't know these things. But I would even go, and this is my personal um, addition to this, I would go right to the worst possible evil in the last century, the Holocaust. And a lot of Jews lost their faith over that. To say, and a lot of people have pointed to that and say, there's no way God could exist and allow this kind of evil. And I wouldn't, I'm not going to bear the proof to say this evil caused this, and it's morally justifiable for this. But I want to say, is it, do we even now have the capacity to say there could be no morally justifying reason for the Holocaust? Because when you look at the power of that story, when you look at how that story and the memory, lest we forget, you know, we see that you know, every, every year we commemorate that, lest we forget, lest we forget. What has that done for racism globally? What has that done for um, holding dictatorship and statism in check? Even the elections, how often does Hitler come up? And that, that checks and, and that, that holds certain things back. And something that might not be apparent to most people, but just from reading history, eugenics and, and the ideas that were popular in, in Germany. Germany was the, the center of intellectual, it was leading intellectually the world. And the ideas that were current in Germany became current 50 years later in the rest of the world. And eugenics, is we, 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 okay, um, not everybody was here for this. This was part of our discussion. No, actually, it, was, it just tagged on the end of our class last week. Um, you had talked about um, um, social Darwinism. And that was part of, obviously, Nazism, thinking that there was the master race, we need to kill off the lesser races. And, and also, we need to kill um, cripples, people with... with uh, with bad genetics, and I, I mentioned that um, the eugenics movement gave birth to Planned Parenthood, and is it Mary, what is her name? Margaret Thatcher was explicitly part of the eugenics movement, and so you, there's, there's people that you can study on that. That's enough information to go Google search and you'll find that information. Um, and I said, social Darwinism makes so much sense, I don't know why we're not socially Darwinist. And even atheists, like, Richard Dawkins and, and Christopher Hitchens would say, I'm not a social Darwinist. I would not apply Darwinian theory to ethics. And this is a completely arbitrary move. It, there is no logical reason for this that I can find on atheism, except for the Holocaust. And I would say this cultural story has created something in our society, and this is just my personal theory on it, that it has created something in, this, in our society that God had a choice. Do I let all of the world, all of the West, follow this path? Or do I let it go to an extreme here mm -hmm. to create a story that's going to hold the rest of the world in check? So, I'm not going to push that out there and say, I know for sure this is why God allowed this, okay? I'm not bearing the burden of proof for that. I'm just saying this is, this helps us understand the tremendous decisions that a being like God would have. If he could look down in the future and see the whole world following this path. 
of radical racism, of deciding what the master race is, and then, you know, and, and radical, you know, all, all the crazy stuff, or does he let it happen here? Tremendous decisions, right? Um, decisions that, that just overwhelm us. It almost seems like it's wrong either way. Uh, and yet, um, we could imagine a morally perfect God having morally justifiable reasons for even the worst and most atrocious things in history. I'll let the heaviness of that hang over us for a bit. <clears throat> so that, that is the first... Sorry. That is the first one, is that we're just simply incapable of knowing what, what would make sense to God, what from his perspective is worth letting happen and what is worth stepping in and stopping. Uh, secondly, uh, the background information. So whenever you say that this is probable or improbable, you need to say, you need to state your parameters. This is probable based on what? If I just say it's incredibly improbable for somebody from Sherbrooke to enter into this room, there's 140,000 people in Sherbrooke, well that's it's pretty improbable that somebody's going to walk into this room. But if I say it's incredibly improbable for somebody that's already enrolled in the King Wellship, Wellspring Kingdom of this, in this school, um, to walk into this room, my parameters are, you know, Wellspring students. Well, suddenly it becomes very likely. So, what are your background? What's your background information? And this is why William Lane Craig puts this argument all the way up chapter six. Uh, so he's already talked about the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, uh, the moral argument, and a few others before he gets to this argument. So then he says, look, we have all these good proofs for God. So based on this background information, it is likely that God exists. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I put it earlier because I want to talk about, um, it's just how I want to put things. Um, but we are going to talk about these things soon, and so that will provide the background information. Um, Third, the problem of evil actually helps prove the moral argument. So we've already alluded to this. You can put up the next slide or the third slide here if you want. Um, so when you're saying evil exists in the world and a good God should not allow evil, mm -hmm. what you're saying in effect is there is such a thing as the moral law, as we talked about last week. And the moral law, if there is a moral law, there must be a moral law giver, which proves, in, a, in effect, that there is a God. Which is why uh, Rabbi Zacharias can say, and it's very confusing, uh, but somebody says, how can God exist with so much evil in the world? And he says, off the top of his head, because he's just like that, um, when you say there's too much evil in this world, you assume there is good. When you assume there is good, you assume there's such a thing as a moral law, on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. You guys follow that so far? You got your last slide. But if you assume moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. But that's what you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there is no good, there's no evil. So what was your question? <laughs> so even in saying God could not exist because there's evil, it, it assumes this good and evil thing that proves God. So... Um, 
a little bit hard to, to wrap your mind around, but it actually proves um, the existence of God. Alright, moving right along. The Christian version of God makes it more likely that there are justifiable reasons for God to allow suffering. And now we're going to talk about um, what Christians believe about God. And oftentimes, atheists have a vision of God where it's like, I don't believe in that God either. And I totally agree that that God is not worthy of worship or belief. Um, but it's, it's so hard to express because it's, it's not so much the intellectual facts about God, God being omnipotent, all-powerful, all-good, all-just, it's the emotional, what is God like? And because of the, the um, I was just down in the States this past weekend, which is why I'm a little bit even more distracted by American politics than usual. Um, who runs our government anyway? I don't know. It's still about American politics. Um, yeah. Um, but it makes a huge difference whether, when we think about God, okay, are you thinking about somebody like uh, Ben Carson? Or are you thinking about somebody like Trump when you think about God? And obviously, okay, well, God is bigger than that. But we have a human starting point. We have a human starting point. And that, that human starting point, fortunately or unfortunately, is usually our fathers, yes. or our father figures, yes. or else our bosses, or else our you know, leaders of our nation. And when we have a very deficient idea about what God is like, you can add all these attributes like omnipotence, um, you know, having, uh, having all the power, having all the knowledge, having the moral high ground, to somebody like Trump, and you just think, this is not a God I want to worship, right? Um, or maybe I shouldn't be that political, I don't know. But it's just, that's where I am, it seemed like a, a good illustration. Or, in some cases, like our own father, to say, if God is like that, that's not a God that is, um, that is worth believing in. But that's not the God that we worship. And, and I just want to encourage you, um, no matter what your experience of God is, go, go on a quest to find the heart of God. When you find the Father heart of God, there's freedom. There's tremendous freedom. Uh, intellectually and emotionally and spiritually and whatever you want else you want to put it, there's freedom. So, um, Rx means Christ. It's an ancient way of expressing Christ. XR means Christian. Uh, that's what I do when I'm with my shorthand. Um, the chief purpose of life is not pleasure, but knowledge of God. This is page 100. The chief purpose of life for Christians is not pleasure, but knowledge of God. So God is not necessarily in the business of keeping his pets well fed and, and happy and, you know, He's in the in the per, he's in the business of revealing himself yeah. and being worshipped by his creatures and creatures being lifted up in worship of him. And since I mentioned that, let's skip all the way down to point four. Knowledge of God is immeasurably good. And I would put this is William Lane Craig's thing, knowledge of God. I would put worship of God is the greatest good. William Lane Craig would put the knowledge of God, I would put the worship of God as being the ultimate good that is possible for humanity. Um, this is a whole other subject, but all of human life is ultimately about worship. And if you, um, John Piper is great on this subject, so is C.S. Lewis, actually. All of life is worship. It is enjoying something. It is 
pouring yourself out and dying for something. This is all of human striving and, and pushing forward is worship for something, for a country, for somebody you love, for yourself, for your product, for money, whatever. We're all going to worship something. And the God that we worship is going to de define who we are as people. So all of life is worship, and the God that we worship defines who we are. And God is the best thing to worship. Just put it like that, simply put. Um, it's what lifted West out of the muck of the, the, the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. It is what has brought about the best art, the best music in history, is the worship of God, or else der derivations of it. And anyways, the worship of God is the greatest good. Again, we're not talking about a petty tyrant up in the sky that says, everybody's going to like me or else I'm going to go home and, and throw some firebolts on you. We're talking about the greatest possible good. And for God not to allow people to worship us, worship Him, for God not to allow people to worship Him would be evil for Him because He is the greatest good. In fact, the greatest, um, the greatest punishment that God gives people is to turn His face away from them mm -hmm. and to say, depart from me, I never knew you. allowing himself to be worshipped, and then creating a way that people can worship him and being in communion with him is the greatest good. Um, so that was, I guess we'll move that up to point number two. But on, on your sheet, sorry, that was, we'll leave that at point number four so we don't get too confused on page 100. Point number three is, number two, is that mankind is in a state of rebellion against God. So we shouldn't be surprised. So at the very bottom of page 100. Mankind is in a state of rebellion against God, so we shouldn't be surprised. We have a valid explanation for moral evil. <clears throat> moral evil is, is to be expected. We shouldn't be surprised that people are bad. We shouldn't be surprised that politics is corrupt. We shouldn't be surprised that, that people hurt one another, because the Bible tells us that people are, are fallen. And also, natural evil is to be expected, because as a consequence of, natural, of, of the free will decisions of, of people, because the world is under the judgment of God, and because sin has consequences. And those consequences don't necessarily hit the person that caused it. That's just the, the nature, again, as we're talking about what, what would it be like to have immediate consequences all the time. The reality of the world that God created, where we have free will, where we can make decisions for or against Him, is that the people that get hurt by sin aren't necessarily the people that are sinning. But, point number three, which would be great for this at the end, I'm going to move this to point number two, and that will just finish off lovely. The Christian worldview includes eternity. So if, if we have hoped in Christ only for this life, we are most men most to be pitied, Paul says. But we have all of eternity. A for justice. Okay? And when you have really been wronged by somebody, really wronged, you want justice. It's all fun and well to talk about forgiveness and talk about, you know, okay, we want to need to, you know, not drink the poison, expect the other person to die, whatever. We need to be free of our, our sense of, of you know, we need to forgive. But we also need justice, okay? Can't let people get away with just whatever. There will be a place of justice. And even if, you know, somebody does something bad and then they both die immediately, there will be justice in that. And there will be an eternity of time also to enjoy the benefits 
of, of character development, which I think is the main thing that God is, is looking for here. And if you, if you ask somebody, I guess this is where I want to end here, um, you know people, you know people that have suffered. And if you ask them, you want to do that again? They would say no. No. You ask them, do you wish it hadn't happened? They would say, no, I'm kind of glad I went through that. Because of who it made me. And if you think about some of the people that, A, are the coolest to talk to, and B, that you want running things. Like, <laughs> you want a, a nurse in charge of you, or a doctor in charge of you, or, or you know, people making laws for a nation that have been through things. You know, and aren't just idealistic. They've, they've felt it. They've suffered. You know. um, the hard times, as much as you could say, well, come on, is God just testing me? Is this just for, you know, whatever? When you just say it like that, that doesn't, that doesn't help in a real situation. And yet, when you look, take a long view over somebody's life, you realize it's the hard times that we grow. And um, that can be a morally justifying reason when we factor in eternity. When we factor in even the suffering, you know, right towards the end of the life when there's, I can't write a book about it, I'm not going to change the world for this. Just completely useless suffering, and yet um, we have all of eternity to enjoy that. No, that, that As the story of, of Mabel at the end of the, of the chapter yeah. is really great. Yeah. That's true. Maybe I shouldn't have said it quite like that. I would have something to say about that. Yeah. Because, so, I, Josiah, um, I lost our son. Okay. And, because um, I've been thinking about this the whole time. Yeah. Right? And um, I can honestly say that I'm glad for the changes. Mm-hmm. Right?
So I need, I need to wrap up. Go ahead. Well, but I get that from, like, you're a Christian too, so you, like, you see how that yeah. for a non-Christian. But, but it, it's been a witness to that I've made here strength, and mm-hmm. he doesn't have a response for how I can walk away. Oh, yeah. He, he yeah. has no, like, grace for So I want to, I need to bring us to a close here, um, and I do apologize, it would have been great to have this more compact and have more time for discussion at the end, because we need to process a little bit. So I'd encourage you guys to talk more at lunch, I mean, that'd be great if you guys could come back and just, just discuss you. Yeah, yeah turkey soup. Um, I am not saying that you will always know in this life, and I shouldn't have said that, I didn't mean to say that every time that somebody goes through something, we have friends that lost their, their two-year-old last year, and, and, and just because really corresponding with her. I don't think she would say, yeah, yeah, I'm glad I went through that. Even to say character development because they're still kind of fragmented and trying to... um, So I'm not saying that we will know. And there's always going to be things that you're just like, why? Why? Um, The the point is that God might have morally justifying reasons. Or or that God God is good and God has morally justifying reasons, whether we know what they are or not. And the point of all these illustrations is to say, um, is just to, to lift our eyes to say, what if it was this? What if it was this? These are some good reasons that we can we can intellectually think about. Um, but again, don't don't take this book to somebody that just lost a child and be like, here's the answer, <laughs> right? Um, and you know, love them, care for them, walk with them. And again, you can have a look at my sermon just called Pain and, and talking about the emotional issue of pain. Um, often people that are in real pain often, not all the time but God gives them grace <coughs> for their trials and often when when there's stuff that we just think this is insurmountable I can't get past this pain it's somebody else's pain that we're taking on and oftentimes God has grace for them but he doesn't necessarily have grace for you to take on their burden so I think that is another helpful thing to mention. Um, I'm going to close it there. I do want to pray, <laughs> even though we're over time by two minutes. Lord God, um, I believe that you are good. Even when I can't see it, even though there are um, the fig tree has not blossomed and there's, there are no olives on the vine or the tree or whatever, as uh, it says in Joel, even though there's no evidence sometimes, and even though there's tons of evidence to the contrary, we know that you are good. Um, because Jesus suffered for us, because we see your love in the Bible, um, and because we experience your comfort with us throughout these difficult times, I just thank you for um, walking with us and for um, caring for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Homework? Yeah, homework. <laughs> I, just in that prayer, I realized I've got two really important points. And I'm just going to mention them, okay? So... The, the fifth one that we should mention is that God has suffered. We have a God that suffers. We have a God, God that lost their son. And we have a God that, that suffered pain in you know, Jesus. And the other thing I was going to say, I forgot again. So um, I'll, I'll add it at the end of this for next time. Underneath the, the video when I remember. Alright. Did you want to take a
Yeah, I'll take the homework now.